Hey everyone, we've got a new pitch website, pitchpodcast.fm. Comment on your favorite episodes, get all the latest news and discuss the podcast with us, pitchpodcast.fm. If you become a subscriber, you'll be able to access real pitches and ad-free episodes. Watch member-only live streams starring us, your hosts, and ask questions we'll answer in future pitch episodes. Join us at pitchpodcast.fm and help us bring you more great content. Welcome to Pitch, a podcast bringing storytellers and stories to the world. I am Angel. And this is Leah St. Marie, and today we have an interview with John Zalzerni, president of feature film production and literary management at Bellevue Productions. His clients' credits include Infinite, Eli, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022, Office Uprising, and Splinter, with feature scripts that are set up at Warner Brothers, Fox, New Line, Focus Features, Sony, and others. This is our first time chatting with John, so we spend the early part of our talk learning about his path to becoming a manager. Later in our conversation, we cover everything from the necessity of film school for writers to the -the under-the-radar shows John is really into and how he is jokingly responsible for Leonardo DiCaprio's involvement in the feature film The Departed. Leah, take us away. And we're here with John Zalzerni from Bellevue Productions. Hi, John. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, Thanks for coming on. Of course. So we have a couple of questions for you for our audience, and I'll be the first one to ask the question. This is one of my favorite questions to be asked, and mm-hmm. it's, what movie made you love movies? That's a good question. I feel like I had to answer that in my film school essay. I don't, you know, off the top of my head, I don't have like a single one that was like um, institutional for me. I think the one that I saw, and it's not even a favorite movie. I don't know that I even own it on on Blu-ray or DVD or anything necessarily, although it is a great movie, is The Seventh Seal um, by Igmar Berkman. I remember seeing that. I was all like playing on like public access or public, not like, not, I don't know, like not like the PBS station, not public access. And I was like midway through and I, I turned it on because, you know, back in the 90s, you just flip channels, you know, you're just like, what's going on? And I was just really stunned. I was like, what the hell is this? It just felt so different, uh, which is not to say that I personally like make the seventh seal or anything like that. I mean, growing up, I think we had a, a very few number of VHS tapes. We had like Top Gun and Robocop and the first Terminator movie. And we would just watch them over and over because it's all you had. Uh, and so uh, those are kind of ingrained in me as well. There wasn't a foundational text for me the way that there is for some people, sometimes for other people. So you, something got you into film school. Uh, where did you go to film school? And are there any classmates doing similarly cool things as you in the industry? And like, why, why did you go to film school? You know, there was no seminal... <clears throat> yeah, I went to um, undergrad at, at NYU, um, Tisch. Although I did transfer in, I did like, I did two years. Well, I did three years at UBC. I did two years, which is I'm from Vancouver up in Canada. So I did two years at at my local uh, college, University of British Columbia in Vancouver, um, because it's expensive to go to college in the States for a Canadian. It's like you have to pay if you're or anyone, you have to pay double the tuition, uh, essentially, especially because right at the time, the American dollar was like double the Canadian dollar. So it was like really expensive. So the idea was I'd spend my first couple of years because the film program doesn't really get started until the third year um, uh, at a lot of colleges or universities. And so I did two years at UBC. 
Then I applied to a bunch of film schools, including UBCs, and I got rejected from them all. <laughs> so then I went and uh, made another short film and applied uh, uh, again. And this time uh, I did get into UBC, but I also got into NYU. So that was pretty amazing. And so ended up going to NYU uh, for five semesters. It was great. Uh, you know, I mean, it just felt like that's what you do is you go to film school. Um, when people ask me about film school, like, do I need to go to film school? I say, no, I don't think you need to. Um, I think it allows you uh, time to focus on film and learning and writing and reading and watching as much as possible, but you don't need to go to college for that. I personally tell people if you are going to end up in significant debt after going to college, uh, especially film school, um, it's not worth it. I was fortunate enough that my family uh, was I was able to end up with no student debt, uh, which is huge and very, uh, very lucky to be in that position, you know, so uh you know, my father often reminds me how much film school cost. And uh, especially if you're Canadian, I don't think people need to go to film school. Uh, but I think if you can and you end up with uh, no tuition cost or no debt, um, then obviously, you know, anytime just focus on your craft uh, will make you better at it. If, but here's what I would say. I personally, my, my back of the napkin uh, math um, anecdotally is that 50% of the people I went to film school with uh, didn't ever use their film school degree ever, ever. And that's an expensive freaking degree to never use. And I would say, you know, I'm, uh, I, it's been 20 years, over 20 years since I graduated from film school. I would guesstimate the number of people still using that degree. And from when I graduated under 15%, under 10%, you know, you know, I'm sure if you did like a law school thing, it might be similar, you know, maybe not, maybe not that low, but you know, it is one of those things. So, yeah, to be fair, I did undergrad. I think if you did graduate, it would be a higher percentage rate because people later in life are a little more like, you know, oh, okay, you know, I know what I want to do. I know what I want to be. So, you know, it is one of those things. You know, Robbie Pickering, who I went to film school with, he uh, is a writer, director. He just created the TV show Gaslight uh, or Gaslit, rather, um, the Julia Roberts TV show. I went to film school with him. Uh, I didn't know them super well, but when I was, I had a friend who was an actress and I went to see her plays that she was in. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard was in those plays with her. There are people who I went to film school with who are like managers, like Rachel Miller um, uh, and I, we, we're still friends. She was a manager and a good friend of mine runs a post-production, is like a, a top colorist at a production house um, here in, in Santa Monica. So, but you know, a lot of people uh still trying to make it or, or, or never didn't quite end up using the degree or whatever. So um, it's kind of interesting in that sense. If I took the money that I spent on my, my two master's degrees and applied it to making a feature film instead, it's six or seven times more to go to grad school than it was for me to make my first feature film. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was seeing that part in Goodwill Hunting where he's like, I got the same education as you for a dollar fifty and fines at the library, you know? Um, and I really don't think going to uh, film school is a necessity. I, uh, even college in general um, is not a necessity to be a screenwriter. But I do think putting the time in to read and watch and write is. And sometimes film school affords that. And sometimes, you know, you, you, you do, you find that time in other ways. So, uh, what got you into representing writers? Cause it sounded like you've made a couple short films, at least very early on, you went to film school. What was the transition like and why representing now? 
Uh, a lot of failure. Um, I went to film school to be, uh, I wanted to be a writer director. And then I directed my first short film and I wanted to, to jump off a bridge because it was so stressful. I remember Kenneth Lonergan had just directed You Can Count On Me at the time. And I read an interview where he described waking up every day to, to direct his film. He woke up and he, he, he threw up into a bucket, which probably explains why he's only directed like three movies, uh, despite being them all being amazing and being a phenomenally talented writer director. Uh, and I felt like that just at a short film level. So film school in a way cured me of wanting to be a director. So that was good. And then I won a scholarship uh, while I was there called the Sloan Foundation uh, Fellowship or scholarship, which is a science-based thing. Cause I wrote a screenplay, but a guy called Alan Turing. And I wrote that in 2001. Uh, and I was like, nobody cares about Alan Turing. That's crazy. And then 10 years later, uh, a guy who I'm friendly with called Graham Moore won an Oscar for it. So clearly Graham was, a, a way better writer than me and be like, but I, I, it was, it was indicate indicative that I had a good sense for ideas, certainly of finding a, topics that would appeal to me, even if I underrated how interesting that topic would be to everyone else in the world. Uh, so I was like, I'll be a writer. So then I moved out to LA and I worked in feature development for Appy in a way, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's company. Uh, and when I was there, I watched this movie called Infernal Affairs that I thought was amazing. I was like, oh, my God, it's it's a cop who's secretly a gangster and a gangster secretly a cop. But I couldn't get anyone to watch it because it was a uh, foreign film. And they didn't feel like watching subtitles. And then I got turned into the party. Uh, so I was like, OK, uh, I also read Superbad. And I was like, this is amazing. And like, you know, whatever. Nobody paid attention. Not that Appy and Way was ever going to make Superbad. Uh, of course, Leo did end up starring in The Departed. Uh, although I, I did have the good luck. I was driving him around one day and he was talking about the departed and, and, and my boss was trying to get him to play the cop role. And I was like, no way you got to be the gangster role. The gangster role is way cooler. Uh, cause I'd seen the original film and, uh, and you know what? I'm sure he, that's the reason he took the gangster role. I'm sure it, it's all me. Uh, the 100%. random assistant who was 100%. driving him to and from his house. <laughs> Anyways, so I did the Appian way and then I got fired and uh, then I went to work for a guy called Andrew Marlow and his wife, Terry Miller, who were both screenwriters who won the Nichols. Andrew went on to create Castle. I worked for Andrew and Terry uh, as an assistant and then I worked on Castle as a writer's assistant. And I was trying to be a writer, but I was super fucking lazy. So I wasn't writing enough, um, but I was always good at like coming up with ideas. And then a friend of mine was like, hey, John, you're really good at coming up with ideas. And I'm a producer. What if we became what if we produce things together and other people wrote your ideas? And I was like, that sounds amazing. I have to do way less work and just tell people what to do. Uh, that sounded great. Uh, and so I did that and I really enjoyed it. And so in 2010, I left to left Castle to focus on Bellevue Productions, which was initially just a production company. Got a bunch of stuff set up uh, at studios and on the blacklist. And even got a really small movie made called Always Watching, but wasn't making very much money from it. And Ian Shore, who'd written the small movie and, and written some of the stuff we got and set up on the blacklist, was like, you're a great, you should be a manager. You'd be a great manager. You could be my manager. Uh, and so uh, with that, I, I shifted into management in 2015. And uh, and yeah, launched Bellevue uh, as a management company. Jeff Portnoy joined me that year. And since then, uh, Zach Zucker has joined us. Kate Sharp has joined us. And then we actually just hired uh, a new junior manager, Maddie Weiss, uh, last week. Um, so now it's a five-person operation. Uh, but yeah, and then, you know, and and so I kind of failed at all these things as like a write, as a writer, as a director, then a writer, then, an, uh, then a development, and then, you know, uh, and as a producer. And then I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to be a manager. And then I finally successful. And I was able to take all the things that I, all the lessons I'd learned from working in, 
on a TV show, working in feature development, working for a screenwriter, all et cetera, and kind of apply them to being a man, working as a producer and apply them to being a manager. And it's actually been pretty, and that's one of the reasons I think we had pretty relatively quick success. I mean, the second year of being a manager, I had the number one script in the blacklist. My wife, Elise Hollander's script, Blonde Ambition, about Madonna, um, you know, was pretty huge. So, and then since that, you know, honestly, it's been kind of like up there since then in terms of, you know, you know, success for clients, success for the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and last year we had the most scripts in the blacklist of any company, any management company. We had 11 scripts, which is kind of insane. Yeah, I think wow. CA had 12, which is crazy because we have, we at the time had four people and they had a zillion. So that was, that was pretty cool. So um, yeah, you know, we were just really focused on breaking younger writer. Well, not younger is, but like earlier in their careers, writers, newer writers, um, and really launching writers. Um, uh, that's what's exciting to us and, and very much a quality-based uh, management style as opposed to quantity. So you mentioned the blacklist. Are you finding writers on there or where do you go about finding your writers? Yeah, no, the blacklist is a huge place that I find people. Um, by the way, when I worked at Appy and Away, Franklin Lander was the CE at the company. So kind of, uh, I was not there when he started the blacklist, though. That was started like the year after I left. Um, but, uh, we've known each other a long time. Um, but, uh, you know, I use the blacklist, uh, so blacklist website to find people. And I've had people be on the blacklist website who then ended up being on the annual blacklist. Um, sometimes even with the script that I found them off of. So that's really cool. There's a script. I was just texting with a producer buddy. Um, actually, no, I guess I found that script through query. I think I can't remember. Um, and that's going on to get made. There's another script I found through the blacklist that just got made last year. Um, you know, there's a there's clients I found through the blacklist who I got staffed on TV shows. Um, the website I should I should be specific. I've never I don't think I've signed anyone off the end to a blacklist who didn't have representation already. Yeah, so I definitely found people that. I mean, I find them through that. I think script pipeline is really great. I found the number one script in the blacklist in 2020 2021 cauliflower through them. Another script called In the End, Brian T. Arnold wrote. That was on the blacklist. Uh, I found that through Script Pipeline. I found the number true script on last year's blacklist, Court 17, in part through Script Pipeline. So Script Pipeline's been really great. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Matt Misetich, um, although to be fair, fair, I was not – I became friends because we he was so good at sending scripts and I wanted to get to know him. So it's not like he was my friend and he started Script Pipeline. Uh, a lot of times you, I've become friends with people because – we work together and we really enjoy that. So there's a mutual respect. So like Ian Shore and I, I didn't know Ian before we started working together. And now he's one of my closest friends. He like was the efficient at my wedding, you know, I just specify my wife was my girlfriend before I was a manager. So that was not a case of dating a client. She was not a client. I was not even a manager when I started dating her. Um, so, but you know, you become friends because you work with people and they respect your, uh, I, I respect what they do and they respect what I do. So you become friends. So script pipelines. Great. Um, I used to, I used to read, I, well, I, I've read for Austin film festival every single year up until this year, because my wife and I just had our first baby, Lily, a little, a little daughter, Lily, who's about five months old now. Um, thank you. And, yeah, congratulations uh, I, just, on that. I did no time to, thank you. I had no time to read. I was like, I got no time to read. Uh, who knows even by next year, if all of them with the time to read, it's it got a, it's, it's been tricky to find the balance now for reading as much as I used to. I used to read it like from like 11 or midnight to like 2 AM. That is not what I do nowadays. Uh, so, uh, even though Lily's pretty good at sleeping at the moment, knock on wood. 
So yeah, uh, Austin, you know, the other play I found writers through, I forget. I found, I, I have a client, Alex Saria, who wrote the script black, Pill. I forget how I found her. I want to say it's like Screencraft, but it might've been a different competition. Um, so I used to read for all the, I mean, I still do. I just took the year off because of Lily. Um, I read for all these competitions and stuff like that. And then people are like, I'm friendly with Joey Tucci at Roadmap. He reaches out and will send me people, you know, cover fly. I get like this email they got called the red list and they always highlight a few writers. So I see someone whose works is interesting to me and they don't have a manager. I'll occasionally download it and read it when I have the time. But I would say that the the blacklist, I when I get those weekly emails. So as a rep, I actually have done a Twitter thread on this. But as a rep, you get an email uh, once a week. That'll be uh, scripts our, our readers recommend, one for TV and a separate one for features and also for plays, although I don't really do playwrights, but you might find a great playwright, you know, convert to TV or features. But anyways, um, so I did that. Uh, so whenever I get that email, I almost immediately, when the moment I, as soon as I can, when I get it, I read through it. And if there's something that's interesting, I click a logline that's interesting. I click on it and I look, read the logline. If I like the logline, I click on it and then I'll go and I'll read the first a, I'll make sure they don't already have a manager because sometimes people do. If they don't, then I'll read the first, you know, 10 to 15. If I like it, then I'll download it to read the rest of it at a later date. Um, so that's kind of my process. But yeah, when I get those emails, that, them, or from Coverfly, I read it very quickly. Um, you know, but the same from Joey Tuccio uh, or from Matt Misetich uh, over at Script, Joey at Roadmap or Matt over at Script Pipeline. You know, if, if someone that I trust, uh, I will, you know, I will always be like, hey, I want to read this, you know. So I've, I've seen another um, interviews you talking about uh, people sending you query letters and what do the best query letters have in common that gets you to say, yeah, sure. Send your script over. Is it log line? First thing, first thing they hit first thing, they don't have any files attached. I will auto delete anyone who sends any files attached. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's your resume. It doesn't matter if it's like, for some reason, actors are always emailing me. I don't know why. Not to read their screenplays to represent them. I don't know why. But anyways, photos or whatever, your lookbook, your like pitch deck, I just delete, delete. Because same with if you got emails from someone you don't know, and it was like, here's some files. You'd be like, I don't know who this person is. So I delete them. Um, but beyond that, I would say, you know, I like a subject. I The truth is, I think I pretty much read almost every uh, subject line, but you know, I, I like to judge, I'm judging your writing almost immediately. So you want a subject line that is, um, straightforward, um, you know, and hopefully indicative of the content, you know, not like, Hey, read me right now, or like urgent or like nice connecting with you. It's like some bullshit, like someone's trying to trick me, which is like, you know, and then, you know, Hey, John, hopefully my name, not just, Hey, and then B you see it's BCC to every single fucking manager in town. Uh, hey, John, I am a former high school teacher who's written a, whatever, a script about being a high school teacher, whatever. Um, you know, hi, John, this is who I am. I've written, you don't even have to say who you are. I mean, you can if it's interesting. Uh, you know, I have a whole, again, a, a Twitter thread kind of laying all this all out in, in more detail. But like, but really, and you were asking, Angel, what the common denominator is. The simple common denominator, other than not having attachments, is a great logline. And a great logline is something that sounds fast, it sounds interesting, maybe a little bit of mystery. And it's not a plot summary. But I get a lot of e emails that are like, here's my logline. The logline is, Jamie goes on a journey that will change him. What the fuck does that mean? You know, or like, 
Jimmy falls in love and must figure out a way to make her actually that's actually that's actually a long line but you know Jimmy falls in love and discovers it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to him it's not like it's not a story it's just like a a thing I don't know what it is again it's like a description I suppose um and it's like boring you know if you can't write a good log line then like I know people are like I'm a great writer but I don't know how to write a log line it's like well you got to work hard at it you know it is, that is a, a real thing, but really working at the log line. I like a little bit of mystery, you know, you know, something like that's always fun, you know, when blank, then blank. But what if, but what, you know, when Bill discover, I mean, I can, I'm not going to come up with a good log line on, on the fly, but when Bill discovers that his wife is secretly an alien, he must figure out whether to turn her in or, you know, save her. I don't know. Right. Whatever. But like, that's got like, you're like, oh, okay. He's, what if you fell in love with someone, but they weren't, you know, who they appeared to be? Like, there's a great script called, I want to say it's called Exorcism, a love story. I, I always fuck up the title. Possession, a love story. It's called Possession, a love story. That's about this guy. And he he's, he and his wife are like fucking awesome. They're so cool. Like, they're just, they're like leaders of the of the, of the world. or they're, they're like super cool, like awesome. Their relationship is great. They have sex all the time. They're super cool, successful. His wife starts getting sick. And nobody can figure out what's wrong with her. So one night, you know, he's so upset. He's there. She's like, she's like, she's like, Bill, I don't know what their names are, but Bill, do you, you know, do you know what, but being possessed by a demon is? And he's like, you're not possessed by a demon. I don't, that's like some nonsense. It's not what's going on, you know? And she goes, or there's not a demon trying to possess you. She goes, no, you don't understand. I am the demon. He's like, what? And the concept is the real script that was on the blacklist number of years because I fucking, I love it. I think it got the writer a lot of work. I don't think it never, it never got made tragically, um, or at least hasn't so far. And turns out that let's call her Amy. Amy is uh, Amy was a drug addict. The body was a drug addict, and then the demon took it over. And the demon is the personality that he fell in love with. And she's like, look, the personality is trying to reassert herself, the original person. You need to help me like do this ritual to make her go back and like make sure I have still have the body myself, you know. And he's like, oh, well, I love you. I guess I'm going to do this. And then the body starts to break through. And she's like, please, you don't understand what it's like to be a passenger in your own life. I want to change. I want to live. This is so awful. Please help me. Help me. And he's like torn. He's like, oh, my God, I love my wife. But also, like, this is shitty. You know, what do I do? And so it has that kind of conundrum that can sometimes be really awesome. Um, you know, not all screenplays are like that. But, you know, if there is one that's always interesting, the conundrum that you can end up in. Like, we saw this thing called Capsule to Fox like back in 2013 and it was with this guy whose life is like kind of shitty but then he gets a message from his future self who's like hey it's me 20 years from now I'm gonna make help you make your life awesome by telling you what to do he starts doing shit his life becomes awesome and then his future self is like hey I need you to kill someone he's like that's fucking crazy I'm not gonna kill someone and then someone shows up and says I have to kill you or else I'll be killed and he's like oh my god my future self is trying to kill me which doesn't make any logistical sense because how could that be and so the movie is unraveling what the fuck is really going on 20 years in the future. It's a time travel movie without any time travel. Uh, and so that's a, like, that was kind of a fun concept of like, what if your future self is trying to kill you? You know, I love um, this. Yeah. So like, and then again, not all screenplays are like that, you know, uh, and they don't have to be. But if you can figure out a little bit of mystery, a little bit of like, what the fuck is going on in the thing, you know, when this, then this. But, you know, um, I think it's kind of like what is fun. What Cormac McCarthy said is just don't be boring. 
It's one of the sins that you cannot be. There was a, a big writer. discussion on Twitter about that the other day. I don't know. if No, I didn't guys, see it. You guys saw that. I, I commented on it very briefly because uh, someone had said, you know, I find that a really um, uh, hollow platitude, essentially. It doesn't mean anything like because, you know, what's boring to Angel might not be boring to me and vice versa. Right. Um, and what I wrote was like, you have to my interpretation of that line is you have to make sure that the choices you're making, what Ian, Ian Shore always calls the A or the B, C choices, you know, like what do you have to come up with a D choice or an E choice, come up with the unexpected, you know, and you have to be rigorous on yourself to be like, have I seen this before? Has everyone seen this before? You have to put, if you're doing a horror film, you got to see all the other horror films and know that if you're doing something, you're pushing boundaries, you're like doing something unexpected. And so it's kind of inherent on you. I completely agree with that idea. Um, and, you know, the reality is if you can't tell what other people find boring, then uh, it's probably going to be a rough ride for you as a writer. So let me let me piggyback off of that and ask you in kind of broad terms. In regards to finding a new writer and their material or their mm -hmm. genre, what's an immediate pass for you? And then the opposite. What's a yes? In, in terms of, I'm sorry, in terms of what? Oh, like, like you're not doing rom-coms. Yes to oh, thrillers. Or if there's something more in-depth. I don't really have, and I think anyone who's like, oh, I would pass on every rom-com, I think that's, like, silly. Because, like, what if someone pitched you, like, the next, you know, four weddings and a funeral? Like, so there's no, I, I there's no immediate passes to me. I would say what's a more uphill battle for me would be a broad comedy. Um, but someone found their way to do the next liar liar or the next, you know, um, something of Mary or Tootsie or whatever, like I'm in, you know? Um, but you know, broad comedy is just difficult in the marketplace. And, and honestly, comedy is always very, um, I'm working on a comedy right now. Uh, and it's, it's clear. I've got notes back on it and it's clear. Like what I thought was good. Other people are not loving comedy is the most, um, subjective of, in my opinion, of all the genres. So, I would say I'm a little more picky when it comes to comedy, um, but I wouldn't say that like I'm, it's on my automatic pass, you know, but in terms of like what's what I'm more inclined towards. Um, I'm looking for something that feels novel. You know, I would say I do have a fair number of genre clients, action, thriller, sci fi, horror. But like that also means that the, the bar for signing someone else who does that is also high. You know, because I've already got some great horror writers. Why? What does this person do that my clients don't already? You know, often that's a point of view. That's a way of seeing things in a different way. You know, like I have some great horror writer clients like Ian Shore, David Churchillo, Chris Thomas Devlin, um, Nick and Amanda, you know, other people as well. And so but like a David Churchillo script is different, very different from Chris Devlin's point of view, you know, and so on and so forth with, with all my all my clients. And so I feel like they're all very unique writers. And so that's what I would say is like, I'm looking for someone with a fresh point of view and a fresh take. So I'm not as concerned with genre and being like, oh, I would never do that. You know, I would say I probably would not be inclined towards like Hallmark movies, but that's partially because I know that a lot of Hallmark movies are developed internally. They're not, uh, they're not buying specs. It does happen, but not very often. So that's not something I'm going to spend a great deal of time focused on as a marketplace, you know? let alone whether or not I watch them, you know. I wanted to ask a question, because um, a lot of this stuff is nuts and bolts, storytelling, <laughs> screenwriting, right? This is like 101, like you got to make sure it's this, that, and the other thing. 
when you come across a writer who has an excellent sample, an excellent spec script you find on the blacklist, you find it at Coverfly, mm-hmm. are you generally encountering them having the ability to talk as compellingly about their script and pitch their story as they're writing? Or are you finding there's a, there's a spectrum of abilities with pitching verbally and talking about their stories with the writers who are excellent writers? I would say there's a pretty wide spectrum. Um, I mean, look, I'm not really looking for people to necessarily pitch the script they've already written. I can pitch the script they've already written to people and get people. If I send people a script, they're going to read it, or hopefully most people will. Um, So that's fine. What I need them to be able to talk about is who they are as a writer and pitch themselves. And to some degree, that's figuring, like I was talking to a client today, and, you know, he had some ideas that felt a little... um, more of an uphill battle. And I was like, Hey man, I want that script that I can go and beat down every studio's door. So they have to read you. They can hire you for their next OWA, you know, but but if you don't want to write that, that's totally fine. Like, I think you're super fucking talented, but like I, for me, I'm always thinking like, where are we moving? Where, what's the brand and where are we pushing you towards? You know, like my wife wrote Blonde Ambition. It was a, you know, a a female driven biopic. So um, set in the music world. So she got a lot of, music scripts sent her, you know, opportunities sent her away. She got a lot of female driven opportunities sent her away, so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, and then she wrote another, she wrote an assignment and then that opened up different possibilities and so on and so forth. And so if you want to go up for an action OWA, but you have no action scripts, I can't really put you up for that. I mean, I can try, but it's going to be an uphill battle. And so I'm looking for you to be able to like, when you get in the, when you, so the script gets you in the room and then you in the room, gets you more opportunities, you know, but I would say, you know, most writers are not necessarily the world's greatest salesman, you know, because it is a very internal process, you know? Um, and I would say if you can find a person who's a great writer and a great and great in a room, then, um, you know, then that's going to be a huge, they probably move towards directing or show running, you know, because, uh, writing is a very ephemeral, thing and you know you're kind of going on trust and if people can kind of get the room and you can make them trust you then you're going to go very far kind of related to this at what point in a writer's career do you think they need a manager i mean that's not to me to determine it's really up to them to determine when they when they want to manage or they when they feel like they need a manager i will say typically managers are a lot more in the current moment, likely to sign clients uh, early on in their career than an agent is. Um, I've had clients who have very high profile scripts that people love, and yet agents are loath to get to sign on because right now, I mean, look, the reality is uh, there's a lot fewer agencies than there were five years ago. ICM is gone. There are other agencies that are, are much smaller than they used to be. You know, there's a lot of um, oppression, consolidation happening in the in the representation space, you know, and so agents are kind of like, I want a person, they want to know how quickly can you get to making them money and they're not and they and there's pressure on them to have a list that almost entirely makes them money. So, you know, I, I think managers are tip- historically going to be more open to taking on someone who's not going to make the money tomorrow than agents are, but there are exceptions and there are agents who um, think like managers and there are managers who think like agents, you know? But, um, I wanted to ask about something that came up in another interview of yours where you talked about 
working with a writer whose script is almost there, say the script is at 70%, and, and you were like 30% more work and we're selling this baby or, you know, it's, it's ready to go out. Or it's ready to go out, yeah. Yeah, ready to go out. What's your process on giving notes? And now that I understand that you came from a writing background yourself, you went to film school, that's a little bit uh, insightful into how you developed the process. But how has the process changed over the course of representing people and giving them notes? I don't think the process has really changed necessarily for me, in part because the process comes from kind of being a writer and also really more from my days as a producer, you know, um, I don't like to do written notes. Uh, I do verbal notes entirely, typically over a phone call. You know, I like to, if I can with a new client, I like to start from like scratch at the logline phase. But if it's an existing script, when I want to sign someone, I'll be like, look, this is what I think we should do. This is the plan. This is what I think should change about the script. Um, and hopefully they sign with me because they agree with that. You know, it'd be kind of weird if they're like, I don't think the script needs any more work, but I'll sign with you anyways. It's about getting the script to the level where it's good enough that we can take it out to a million people, which I will do, and, you know, get everyone to read it. If I'm going to take something out to 100 executives, it better be the level of quality that reflects well upon me. It's very much a verbal process. Uh, again, not written down. Just going over the script being like, I think we should tweak this. I think we should do that. Here's an overall note we want to think about. Here's that. Here's this. You know, and then they'll do it and they'll do the the the, the notes in revision mode. I'll read the revised pages and be like, hey, this is great. Tweak this, tweak that. I think this. And again, it's always a conversation. And I, I find written notes um, annoying because written notes often proceed from one place where it's like, so this script isn't working because the first act is too slow. So let's just get rid of this thing that happens to page 15 and then everything will move up 15 pages, you know? And by the way, that might be the right solution or it might be the wrong one. I like to pitch it. Ver I'm like, hey, I'm going to say that. And the red's like, you know, I get what you're going for, but I think we could accomplish it more by doing this instead. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And then the, therefore it changes the entire ripple effect of all the notes I would have given. Whereas written notes are tend to be based on a certain idea and then expand outward from that. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it's about having a conversation and hopefully through that conversation, a better idea can arise. So I like it to be a conversation, but I think for me, what's really helpful instead of a writer, you know, and it doesn't happen often, but writer being like, no, I disagree with that note. Just being like, okay, I understand the note, but I don't think the solution you're pitching is the right solution, you know? And I think that's a good thing to think about when you get into like paid work and working with actors and directors is you can tell someone their note is, especially if they're paying you, that their note is dumb. But what you can do is try to understand that note and then figure out the best solution for it. Because all people really want to do is be heard. Now, look, there are some times where an actor would be like, hey, I think I want to change my client, my character's job from lawyer to plumber. And he'd be like, look, I get what you're saying, but maybe what if he was a, a dentist or a, or, a, or a lawyer who used to be a plumber? And they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, they have to be a plumber. And there's no getting around that, right? Uh, but, um, you know, more often than not, it could be a conversation where you, where you wonder – as my old boss, Andrew Mull, used to say, what's the note behind the note? I don't think he invented that saying, but, it, it, you know, he's the one who told me it. I want to steal one of your questions, Angel, just so we make sure that we get it in. Sorry. Get it. Yeah. Get after it. Thanks. Uh, how many scripts are you reading a week? And then I think there's a follow-up question you also have, Angel. Yeah, he already answered. It was, it was, what's your stop point? You said 10 to 15 pages. If you like it, you'll download and keep reading. But at what point do you hit the eject N button? No. I mean, like, are you reading five scripts per week? Or are you reading 10 scripts per week? Not where in the script do you end? I don't know. <laughs> if you'd asked me that uh, in July, I'd have an answer. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't have an answer right now just because I'm adjusting to being a new dad. Um, but also it's, it's a kind of a hard thing to say. Cause it's kind of been like, how often do you, uh, do you bring your umbrella to work? And it's like when it rains, you know, um, I, you know, there are weeks when I get one or two scripts that I think are worthy of a potential consideration for a client. There are weeks when I get five, you know, um, so I'm reading as many scripts that I have deemed to be worthy of me to check out. You know, I'm way behind in my reading at the moment because of, you know, right now my priority is client reading, but, uh, you know, with the, the new baby, but, um, normally, I mean, normally my turnaround is two weeks from when someone within two weeks from when someone, uh, emails me the script that I request, uh, to me, you know, responding, um, at this point, it could be month to six weeks. You know, I'm just much further out at this point just because, uh, you know, which I think, you know, I hope people understand that. But like, it's like I want to be able to have the I want to be able to have the 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 time and the space to like read it in a in a frame of mind where, you know, Lily's not screaming. You know, for me, I need to find a, a time when I will not be interrupted and I can read and focus. And that's really hard as a new dad. Because at any point your kid could wake up and and need you and need 100%. My daughter, it's very much if she even catches me looking at my phone, she she is upset. So even at five months, you can already tell somehow. Um, That's great. So uh, yeah, is it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, it's, she's certainly a character. So right now my reading is my pile is much bigger than I would like it to be, and I feel bad because I like to be respectful of people, but. Also, my clients take priority in my reading pile because I've signed on to them and I feel like I, I owe them that much. You know? You've know, you done a, a few general interviews out there. Uh, you're super generous with your time. What do you get out of it, um, giving back so much, given that you've got a robust client set and you've got a business and now a baby? Like you're, you're taking time out of your schedule. You know, why are you so generous? That's a, thank you. Cause I'm amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I like talking to other people. Uh, I, I find it enjoyable. You know, also to be blunt, uh, you know, for me, it's like maybe someone listening to this podcast is wouldn't have queried me otherwise, or maybe they'll hear this podcast and then like two years from now, I'll I'll I'll, I'll want to sign them because they had a script that was on the blacklist website that I liked, and they'll be like, oh yeah, I remember John. He 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 was on that podcast that I really liked. He seems like a decent guy, you know. Um, there definitely have been people who've heard me on podcasts or seen me on Twitter and therefore have queried me. You know, I'm sure there are people, by the way, out there who had no opinion of me, heard me on a podcast, saw me on Twitter, were like, that guy sucks. And then I <laughs> then they don't want to sign with me. So I'm sure that's happened. Um, it must have. But, uh, you know, I mean, look, it's good to get the name out there. I'm, you know, it's funny, even though I'm relatively established, I still read all the query emails. It's like a predilection. So, you know, because I found people through them. Like I said, there's a there's a script that is about to head in production relatively soon. I was just texting. He's like, yeah, we got the green light. We're just getting the budget together. We're going to shoot later this year. I found that through a query email, you know. This is amazing to hear because there is such a split between whether or not querying managers or querying anybody gets any kind of result and you're saying yes well, what does it cost anyone i guess that's my question to the you like like never on the focus should be on writing a great screenplay that's your 100 your focus put that you're put 95 percent of your time into that but like if you wanted to query people to me it seems like what you could do is you spend two weeks or i don't i don't know like two to three weeks 
you know, one or two weeks of that is, is finding all the emails and for people and going on IMDb Pro and finding, but there's not like a fuck ton of managers out there who are reading query email, but you find, you find the people who are at least are interesting to you. And then you sit down for like, I don't know. I mean, I send like, when I'm taking out, like when I'm taking, when I went, so my whole blacklist strategy is like, you take scripts out around September, October, near the voting period, make sure they're fucking interesting and quirky and different. And then the day that the ballots go out in November, I email every single person that I know that's a blacklist voter, um, most of whom have read at least one of my screenplays that I think is worthy of consideration and say, hey, I know the votes went out. Here's like, I know that you read, um, I know that you read Court 17. Here's a couple other scripts I think you might like. And, and I just put the log lines in. I don't even attach the scripts. If they want to read the scripts, I'll send them the script. But I don't, again, I don't attach, I don't attach things without permission, you know, just like I ask people to do with me. Um and then, and that's that. But I sent out probably like, I don't know, 100, 150 emails in like two hours, you know? And so like the reality is, you know, if you took two weeks or something, you could really get all the querying done. And then what did it cost you other than time? Nothing. So I don't get like, and look, there are, I am probably one of the few managers who does read and respond to queries, but I know there are more because when I've tried to sign people, I've, I've found off of queries, Sometimes they're meeting other managers and sometimes they sign with other managers. So like, I know it works because I've signed, I've tried to sign people off queries and someone else signed them instead who found them off a of query. So I know there's more people. Now, look, you're not going to get Guyman Cassidy at 360. who's a massive manager. He's not reading, but like maybe a junior you know, up and coming manager at, at management 360 is. So I don't understand why people are like, Oh, you should never like it requires if, if you had to pay five dollars each query, yeah, of course, absolutely. I think that's like, but it doesn't cost you anything. So I guess that's where I'm a little confused about like these big like don't ever do it. You know, if it costs, look, what I would say is don't put all your stock into querying. I think you should be querying. I think you should be um, going in reputable, reputable contests, which also means do your research. If you take your car to a, a mechanic, you're pro hopefully. You're going to like look them up on Yelp and make sure they're there. They don't say this person sucks, right? Do the same amount of research that you would for anything in your life, a plumber, a mechanic, a doctor, a lawyer, and put it towards uh, contests that are charging you and be like, is this worthy of, you know, there are a lot of contests out there like the Beverly Hills, you know, independent cinema, blah, blah. Nobody gives a fuck. Like if you won that, nobody cares. They don't. I've never heard of that. I don't care. This is know? not a real contest audience. I don't think it is, no. but um, it probably is, though. If you throw if you throw a rock, you can hit a contest. But, you know, is it worthy of your time? So I would say the uh, we're, if you've got an amazing screenplay, and that's the first thing. Focus all your time and energy on running a great screenplay because it doesn't matter how good your query is. If your screenplay sucks, nobody's going to want to sign you. Um, so the first thing is writing an amazing screenplay. Then once you've got that in place, queries, why not? Contests that are worthy of your time, which by the way, there's not a fuck ton of them, but there are. So spend your time doing the research on that. And then I would say, you know, things like the blacklist, things like cover flight. I mean, yes, some of them do cost money, but that's how it works, you know? Um, and, but you have to judge for yourself what is worthy of your, again, Put the time in to judging the things that make sense for your script. You know, if, you, if your script, if you've written an action thriller about a serial killer, it's probably not a good fit for the Sundance Lab. You know, it's just not. Or the Nichols. The Nichols don't do shit like that, typically. 
So look at what has worked in those places. Yeah, and put your time into the things that are worthy of your time. But I would never tell, and you know, and if you're in Los Angeles, I think it's worthwhile to, I don't like the term networking, but you know, get to look. I think I think writer up and coming writers should get to know other up and coming writers. If for not for networking, quote unquote, but for to find friends that you can be like, oh man, you know, the producer just gave me awful notes. Oh, it's happened to me too. They're going to understand you. My wife is a very successful screenwriter and she's become friends with other successful screenwriters because they can be like, oh my God, the studio just hired someone to give me a, do a polish. It sucks, you know, or the director is, you know, recasting. I can't believe it. You know, they can, they can understand they're at the same place in their career. And so you want to build that, not be so that you can like, hey, uh, you have a manager. Can you send me your, can you send my script? Like that, that kind of transparency is very obvious to anyone who spent more than five minutes in Los Angeles. Um, do it from a good place. But yeah, maybe, you know, if you go to a screening Twitter meetup, maybe you'll meet someone and who might be helpful for you or not. I don't know. Um, I think it's, I think it's do it out, do it because you like people, not because you're looking for an edge. But to be real, but things do happen because you meet someone, but hopefully it comes from a good place, you know? So we've got about uh, 10 minutes left before you got to jump off. Leah, did you have anything you actually wanted to squeeze in? I have one more question, but uh, do you have, do you have something that you are just burning to ask that you want to use this time for? Yeah. So my burning question is, John, are there any under the radar TVs or movie, uh, TV shows or movies that you've seen over the last year? that aren't getting the recognition. You're not like the White Lotus or the There's Bears. one. It's one I talk about all the time. Everyone who follows me on Twitter may be tired of this, but it's called Mr. In-Between. It's on Hulu. It's formerly an effect show. It's a New Zealand... No, it's New Zealand, Australia. It's Australia? It's Australia. It's an Australian show about a guy who's kind of a criminal. Well, he's definitely a criminal. But like people, he's described as a hitman sometimes, but he's not really a hitman. He, he does kill people, but that's not really his job, except for when it is. He's a criminal. He's a, he's a low-level criminal, but it's just funny. It's only half an hour. The first season is six episodes. You could watch the whole thing in three hours in one night. The first season, I should say. Um, it is one of the best shows I have ever seen and a personal favorite of mine. Um, and I should actually check and see if this third season is available on Blu-ray. Because I don't trust streaming websites to keep things forever. But uh, that's that's the show that I come back to a lot. A movie that came out relatively recently that I feel like nobody's talking about and they should is She Said. Um, I watched that uh, probably about less than a week ago. And my wife and I were just, my wife actually watched the first half hour of it. And she's like, I stopped because I knew I wanted to watch it with you because it's so good. I'm glad she did because it, it's really knockout good and it's not getting the attention and the acclaim that it absolutely deserves. And also, this one has actually started to become a bit of a, a thing online that people are vouching for. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I watched that. It's really, really good. I would say it's the Paddington 2 of this year, as in a, an, a, a children's film that transcends to adults really loving it. I love Paddington 2. I don't think it's as good as Paddington 2, but it's really fucking good. Paddington 2 is like the high watermark, and Puss in Boots is just a little below that. But it also, the structure and character arcs uh, is impeccable in Puss in Boots. It is a impeccably made, impeccably uh, structured um, uh, film that I think anyone who watches it who wants to be a writer or is a writer will learn from. I, I learned from it, honestly. That's great. Uh, I think we should wrap it up in respect your hard out at five. So I just want to thank, thank you. you so much, John, for coming on and talking about how useful query letters are and 
just talking about the industry with us. It's been great and eye-opening for me, for sure. Yeah. And listening to you talk about stories and more or less like pitch or sell some of the stories that you liked is uh, really helpful for me and I think really helpful for our listeners because like you said, not all writers are great salespeople, but you clearly have a gift for relaying enjoyable stories in a compelling way. So thanks for everything, man. It's been a real pleasure for me too. Thank you. That's incredibly kind of you. And I really appreciate you coming on. And and yeah, this is really interesting. And honestly, some different questions than I, than I kind of normally get. Yay. Um, so I really appreciate that kind of a, I really like the look at kind of thinking like, how do you approach these things? And what are, what are the things that stand out? What are the things that make people stand out and the script stand out? So great questions. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Congrats again on Lily. That's amazing. Awesome. Best of luck Thank you that. so much. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to John Zauzerni again for sitting down and talking with us. Hopefully you got something from this conversation. We know we did. If you didn't listen to this week's premium episode, we had Beth Greenman with her feature script, Neighbors, Sam Welch with her TV pilot, Flyover State, and last, we had Adrian Thorne with her feature script entitled Stones. And on that note... Cheers from Hollywood. Cheers from Hollywood. If you're on the fence about subscribing, know that a portion of all subscription fees go toward the nonprofit Young Storytellers, raising voices one story at a time.